Hello, everyone, on this Palm Sunday morning. I'm very happy and excited to read the account of Christ's triumphal entry from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, beginning at verse 28 through verse 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who, went, who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. While you're standing, grab a Bible and open up to Romans chapter 6. It's uh, page 941, I believe. 942, if you're using the Pew Bible. We just read about God's amazing grace. We've been learning about God's amazing grace as we've been in the book of Romans. And it leads us to a question we recognize just how amazing and radical the grace of God is. Paul asks this question in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we pray that you'd help us this morning to understand just how amazing and radical it really is. Help us to walk in newness of life because of the grace that you poured out on us. And to never look back. Help us to say with confidence, like Paul, should we sin? May it never be. Make us holy people for your glory. And use this text to that end this morning by your Spirit's work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So I titled the sermon this morning, Grace is More Radical Than You Think. And I, I mean that. And I hope that that's what you walk away with this morning. With that sense of like, you know what? Yeah. Grace is, is way more radical than I think. And if we get that, it's, it's going to not only be a tremendous encouragement to us, but a tremendous force of transformation in our lives. Because that's what the grace of God came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what his death and resurrection aimed to accomplish. Transformation of our lives. So, that's where we're headed this morning. And uh, let, me, let me begin to set us up, if, especially if you haven't been with us uh, up to this point. We've been in Romans for a couple of months now. The first five chapters of Romans have been one long treatise on a really radical concept. And that concept is simply this. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and specifically, what we've been looking at as we've been understanding and explaining what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about is the idea that sinners like you and me, we're all sinners, that sinners like us are justified. We are made right before God by faith alone. Not by our good works, not by our good efforts, not by our good intentions. It's nothing that we accomplish or achieve on our own. We are made right before God by faith in what Jesus is, who he is and what he accomplished for us. Okay? That, is a, that is a radical idea, and the radical idea is not a new idea. It's radical, but it's not new. That's what chapter 4 was all about, is, is Paul was saying, look, I, I know this sounds crazy. You, you, you people that I'm writing to, he's writing to uh, new believers, he's writing into the, the, the Roman world, he's writing to an audience of people who are both uh, Gentile and Jew, and, and he's saying, look, I know that everything that you've ever thought about religion was that you had to do stuff to make God happy with you. And this sounds like a radically new concept, but it's not new. This is, in fact, how Abraham, the father of the faith, was justified. It was not by works, it was by faith. 
So this radical idea, although radical, is not new. And, and, and here's the thing. The, the apex of the radicalness of this idea comes at the end of chapter 5 in verses 18 through 21. I want you to, to look at it again with me. Verse 18, he says this. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The the apex of of his argument here of of why we're sinners and why we're saved, not by what we've done or can accomplish, but by faith alone and what Jesus accomplished, is he's he's making this argument that that there's something uh, that that we will call federal headship that comes into play with humanity. Representative headship. That prior to Christ, we were all under the, the representative headship of our first ancestor, Adam, who sinned. And his sin, Paul says, was imputed to all of you. He sinned and it counted for everybody. We were born under the curse of his sin and therefore we're all guilty as sinners as well. We can't help it because we're, we're under the headship, the, the, the counting of one man's sin and affected everybody. But then Jesus comes along. And Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is God's way of undoing the curse and the headship of our first ancestor, the sinner Adam. Jesus comes as the perfect righteous son of God. The one who never sins. And through his death on the cross, God punishes all of our sin. And we have a new federal head. If by faith we trust in what Jesus has done, we, we can now say that his perfect righteousness and his payment, the penalty of sin, he paid the death, the debt of sin, that now represents you. If you are in Christ, you have a new head, a new representative. Jesus' righteousness now counts for you, whereas before, Adam's sin counted for you. That's a radical, awesome concept. And that's at the heart of the gospel. That's, he says that's what it means to be a Christian. You're new. You're different now. You have a new federal head. That's such an important part of of what we're going to be talking about today. We have to understand this idea of of headship and, and with it then abundant grace because under Adam, none of us deserved God's favor. We deserved punishment. We deserved rejection. We deserved that eternal separation from a holy God. But by his radical grace, he undoes all that in his son and offers to us sonship as well. That we can be heirs with Jesus. That Jesus counts for us. That what's true for Jesus is true for you and me by faith in Him. Awesome, radical concepts, right? But here's the problem. It creates then a a sort of a danger. Although it's all true, it creates a danger for a, 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 a misinterpretation. And that's where he gets to in chapter 6, verse 1. But let me, let me finish out what, um, what he says at the end of chapter 5 just to, just to kind of bridge the gap here. He says in verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, God gave the law to show us what sin looks like. He gave us standards so that we could easily see that, yeah, we don't meet that standard. It came to increase the trespass, or increase our awareness of our sinfulness. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The awareness of sin increased with the law, but the grace of God then came to cover all of that. So although there was an increase of sin because of the law, that just meant that there was an abounding of grace to cover all of it. Again, radical grace. But here's the misinterpretation. What's, here's the potential problem. Verse 1 of chapter 6. What do we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That seems to make sense. All right, so if, 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 if the increase of sin means that grace abounds all the more in order to cover all of it, then, wow, this, this from a fleshly standpoint, it, it seems to make sense. Let's just sin more, we'll get more grace. I was watching a movie with my kids this last week, an old, uh, old movie from, uh, well, old to them, old, from the 80s. Do anybody remember the, the movie, Look Who's Talking? Yeah. All right, basically, it's, it's about a baby and, you, and the baby is given voice by Bruce Willis. We can understand what the baby's thinking. There's this great scene in the movie where the, the baby cries, and his mom comes in the room and gives him milk, gives him a pacifier, and you hear the voice of Bruce Willis as the baby think, oh, I get it. So when I cry, this mommy lady comes into the room and I get milk. And then it immediately goes into this montage for the next several minutes of him just crying, Wah! And her having to get up and bring milk and more milk and more milk because he's figured it out. If I cry, the more I cry, the more I get mom. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. It's that, that's our, that can be the attitude if we misunderstand grace. Well, the more I sin, the more I get grace. Let's just sin. So how does Paul answer this? Well, here's this very simple answer. Verse 2. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No. He says, if that's the way you're thinking, you're thinking totally wrong here. All right? Well, why not? Why not, Paul? Well, the answer is, is powerful, and to be honest with you, it takes three chapters for him to, to lay it all out. So for the next few weeks, we're going to actually be answering this question as we go through chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. All right? But we'll begin to scratch it here today. And, and yet before we get to... Uh, embark on this journey into that powerful answer, let, let, me, let me prep it by an under, giving us all an understanding of what Paul doesn't say. In other words, he, so we, we just got a clear sense that he said that's not the right answer. No, we're not calling for more sin that will get more grace. Why not? Well, here's, here's what he doesn't say, and it's an important and relevant part of understanding what he does say, all right? The first thing he doesn't say, or the first wrong answer to the why not question would be uh, if, if some of us were to say, Paul, you just said, may it never be. You're wrong to say, may it never be. Paul, you went too far. In other words, that does make sense to us that the more we cry, the more we get warm milk. The more we sin, we get more grace. That's, that sounds right to us. So Paul, you went too far by saying no. We should live in such a way that we don't take sin very seriously because we just know, hey, the more we sin, the more we get. Grace is good. And, and that was, that's something that, that we'll call liberalism. All right, That's a liberal approach to understanding the gospel. And it's a wrong approach. We'll unpack that a little bit more. But that would be the first thing he doesn't say. 
He's not affirming what, what this argument is representing. The second thing, though, that he's not saying, wrong answer number two, would be if we were to respond and say, you know, Paul, you're right to say may it never be, that we shouldn't sin, that we would get more grace, but you didn't go far enough, Paul. You didn't go far enough. And we might call this legalism. In other words, that the, the idea here is to say, Paul, let's, let's walk back what you've been saying for the last few chapters. I know you've been saying that it's all grace, that it has, it's nothing to do with what you do to earn God's favor, to earn God's grace, all right? But in reality, we're not supposed to just sin. We've got we've to do good things. So, so let's be honest here. There's a little bit of something that we do. There's a little bit of something that we bring to the table. I mean, there's, there's grace, but then there's, there's our effort too. If we don't put in the effort, God's going to be pretty displeased with us. Well, Paul's answer is different than both of those. It's not liberalism. It's not legalism. And it's powerful. Let's look at how he answers the question as to why by no means should we continue to sin. He says in the end of verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the, that's the answer. Why is it not okay that we sin that grace may abound? Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's a rhetorical question. All right, He's saying, look, when you've died to sin, you cannot go on living in it. That's why. And this is not to say that sinning is impossible for the Christian. But it's to say that it's incongruous. It's incompatible for the Christian. And that's an important distinction. All right, if, if, if you think that what is being said here is that living in sin should be impossible for the believer, you'll probably find yourself greatly discouraged and disillusioned by your own experience. Anybody sin this week? And you might be tempted to doubt God's word, like this verse, when you sin. Now you might say, well, no, I think the operative words here are live in. In other words, Paul probably wouldn't say that Christians will never sin, but that they shouldn't live in a habitual pattern of sin. Right? So, so like visiting a slum and living in one are two different things. And that's certainly true. But, but here's the thing, that's too simplistic. That's, that's not what he's really saying. He's saying that, but he's saying more than that. All right? He's saying something more than just, you should only sin sometimes, Christians, and not very often. He's helping us understand that there is a fundamental difference between what we were as unbelievers and what we now are in Christ. This isn't just sin a little bit less than you did before. There's a fundamental difference between what you were and what you are. And in Christ, you have died to sin. That's what he's saying. So what does died mean? What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Christians are totally unresponsive to sin or temptation like a corpse is totally unresponsive to stimuli. You ever seen like a dead animal laying on the sidewalk or in the street and you kind of like you know, tap it to make sure it's really dead and it don't move, thump, thump, right? Totally unresponsive. 
Uh, it's not like that, all right? Uh, that, 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 that makes some sense here, but that's not what he's getting at. And I've heard a lot of commentators and pastors teach that that's what Paul's saying, but it doesn't make sense that that's what he's saying. Like sin should have no, you should have no response to it whatsoever because otherwise, why would he say what he says in verses 12 through 14? Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. They'd have no need to say that. More importantly, why would he say what he says in verse 10? That Christ died to sin. Was Christ at one time responsive to sin? No, Christ never sinned. So no, the idea of, of death here is, is different. And, and here's the thing. Death, when it's coupled with sin in the Bible, is more of a legal term than a physical one. It's not so much the idea that we're lying motionless, but it's rather, it's, it's presented, death is presented as the grave but just penalty for our sin. Look again at, at verse 10. For the death He died to sin, Jesus, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The most obvious meaning in this verse is that Christ who died bore the penalty of sin, which is death. He met its claim, in other words. He paid the debt. He satisfied the demand. Right? Isn't that what the death of Jesus accomplished? He paid the debt for sin. And he did it once and for all so that sin has nothing left to demand of Jesus. It is finished. And as chapter 5 tells us, because Jesus is our new federal head, what's true of him is true of us as believers. We have been united with Jesus in his death. That's what verse 3 says. We too, therefore, have died to sin in that by our union with Christ, we have also borne the penalty of sin. You say, well, that sounds weird. I thought we couldn't bear the penalty of sin. Isn't that why Jesus had to come? He's the only one who could bear that penalty. Yeah, but, but, but listen to this. He's, he's our, our new representative head. So, so in other words, Christ didn't just die instead of us as our substitute. He died for us as our representative. And therefore, by our union with Christ, His death became our death. And baptism represents this. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Isn't that what the picture of baptism is all about? It's, it's the union that we have with Jesus in His death. That's, that's why when we go under the water, there's a couple things that are happening. First of all, we're being immersed in water, which is a picture of baptizmo, identification. I've, I've shared this with you before, but that word came from the process of, of dyeing fabrics or making pickles. It's taking something and immersing it into a substance where it, it takes on a new identity. Cucumbers don't come out cucumbers. They come out pickles. White fabric doesn't come out white. It comes out red or green or blue. right? So there's the identification with his death. But there's also the very real picture of going underwater where we can't breathe and sort of being buried. Right? And Paul's saying that that, that, that that whole picture, remember what it points to. There's an identification and a unity that you now have, a union that you have with Jesus in his, de- excuse me, in his death. 
So we can think of died to sin in these terms. Not that we're unresponsive to sin, but that its claim over us has been eradicated in the death of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus' death does. It conquers, pays the debt. But that's only half the story, right? Jesus didn't just die. He rose again. And Christ's federal headship over Christians extends beyond the cross and the grave to the resurrection. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. What was the point of Jesus' resurrection? We talked about the point of His death. His death accomplished the paying of the debt. The paying the wage of sin, which was death. The point of His resurrection was about conquering. It was about vindication. It proves that Jesus has the divine authority as the righteous author of life to overcome death, right? But it wasn't just an end. It was a beginning. He resurrected to life. He lives now. He lives forever. He lives daily as the resurrected Redeemer. And Paul is saying here that our union in Christ extends in baptism to this newness of life as well. Follow me on this. I know this is kind of getting like heavy, heady theological here, but but follow me with this. Jesus' resurrection is something that helps us day by day because Paul teaches here that the resurrection is the source of new life that we live now in as believers. Look again at verse 4. You know what you're expecting him to say here? You're expecting him to say that so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too, one day, will be raised from the dead. That's what you expect him to say. One day, you'll be raised from the dead too. And that's true, but that's not what he says here. He says here, as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, then we too may walk in newness of life. What's he saying? He's saying that our union with Christ by faith in His resurrection, provides us the source, the energy, the power, the grace to live the Christian life right now. Right now. It's one of the great distinctive aspects of Romans and the rest of the New Testament. We don't do this in our own strength. We we, we, we do it in the power and the grace of the living God. Where do you get that from? You get that power and that grace by your union with Christ through His resurrection. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you right now if you're a Christian. And so having made these points about our union with Christ in both His death and resurrection, Paul then summarizes what the total effect of that is. Okay, You've got union in His death. The penalty's paid for you. In his resurrection, new life now you live with sin behind you? Here's the total effect. Again, look at verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection 
like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, so your old self has been crucified with him. Your old sinful self, the old self that lived under the reign and the rule of sin, that followed the passions, obeyed the lusts of sin, all of that died with Christ so that you would no longer be enslaved to those passions. For no one who has died, verse 7, Excuse me, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Why not? Because the debt's already been paid. He doesn't need to die again. He died, he paid, it's finished. And he's resurrected, it's over. And if it's over for him, guess what? It's over for you. It's over for me. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So here's the total effect. People who are united with Christ entirely by the grace of God, okay, entirely by the grace of God, aren't people who live in sin anymore. That's the old self. And that died. That's powerful, isn't it? The Christian life, though entirely wrapped in grace, okay, and that's so important, entirely wrapped in grace, is a life lived in holiness. Here's why. Not because you're saved by your holiness. Again, we're justified by faith through grace. But, Because you've been saved from your sin. You've been saved from sin. Therefore, you're free to live holy lives. The point here is that Christ's federal headship extends beyond the cross to the resurrection. What's true of Jesus is true of you, Christian. That's the point. We are made right before God because Jesus is right before God. Sin and death have no claim over us because sin and death have no claim over Jesus. And we are free to walk in resurrected newness of lives with with lives that are lived to God because Jesus raised and lives forever to God. And so now we have a whole new way of viewing who we are in Christ. And that's really what verse 11 is all about. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. It means count yourselves. Think of yourselves now as dead to sin and alive to God. Why don't you sin? So that grace may abound? Because you have a whole new way of thinking about your life. You have a whole new way of thinking about it. There is a dividing line between the old life and the new one. Let me, let me give you uh, just a, a quick uh, analogy here, uh, maybe to, to sort of help you flesh this out a little bit. T- two weeks from today, uh, Christine and I will celebrate our wedding anniversary. That day, 18 years ago, was the most, apart from coming to Christ, the most significant day of my life. 
right? And, and let me tell you why. Because like coming to Christ, when I had a new union with Jesus, on that day, a, a whole new union took place in my life as well. I was united to my wife, right? The two of us became one flesh. So in a very real sense, this is the biggest dividing point in my life apart from my relationship with Jesus. Now here's the thing. If that's true, that this, this, this marriage became the biggest dividing point in my life. Let me ask you this question. Could I now, as a married man, could I live as though I were still an unmarried man? I could. I could. But why would I? Why would I? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a complete undoing and betrayal of, of who I now am? And, and let's just be fair about that. Wouldn't that be a complete betrayal of, of, of what's good for me? I have a union with my wife that, that brings tremendous blessing to me. I am not what I was. I'm, I'm different. And it's a good different. All right? That's not knocking singleness. Don't get me wrong at all. Please, don't get me wrong. But, but that's not me. That's not Bill Pinalto. I could go back and live like I was still trying to, to, to woo Christine with the same kind of insecurities that I had before she put this ring on my finger, where I wasn't really confident that she was going to be there the next day, where I didn't have full confidence that she really was going to love me for the rest of my life. I could go back to living like that, but I don't want to. Why would I want to do that? When now I have the confidence of knowing that our union is until death do us part. That's a good place to be. Right? So, similarly, think about your dividing line. When you came to Christ, you, you left behind what you were. You could still live as though that's the way you are. And that's what the people in verse 1 are basically saying. Why don't we do that? I mean, it was kind of fun when I was in the wooing stage with my wife. I mean, there were certain kinds of responses that she gave to me that were, you know, there was grace given to me in, the, in that period. I kind of liked that kind of romantic grace. But why would I go live in that when I have romantic security now? Paul's saying this is the way we ought to think of our lives. The old you is gone. You're a different person. Now what's the practical application of that? Well, the practical application is the finishing verses of this portion of the text. Verse 12 then. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? If, if, if that's the old you, don't go back and live that way. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That's the old you. There's a new you. So now present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's who you are now. You have life. And your members, present them to God as instruments for righteousness. That's what they are now. They're His. You're united to Jesus. You're not what you were. And then he says this. He says in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. This whole section here, verses 12 through 14, are the opposite of verse 1, right? Verse 1 says, hey, let's sin. 
And this is the opposite of that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not who you are. And it's rooted in a right understanding of law versus grace. Verse 14 is really important. Paul is is showing us that the question of verse 1 is not a question rooted in grace, but it's a question rooted in law. And that, that, listen to me, that almost sounds backwards, right? It almost sounds backwards. It sounds like a question rooted in grace. If grace abounds when we sin, let's sin. Grace, grace, grace. Paul's saying, you think that you're asking for grace. You're, literally, you're really living under the law. If your life revolves around the law, you'll either be a liberal or a legalist. You're either going to ask this question, how close to the line can I get? Or how far away from that line can I stay? You're either a liberal or a legalist, but you're bound by, you're centered on law. You're focused on the law. Here's the big idea. Any view of grace that leads to more sin is a false view of grace. The attitude behind the question in verse 1 is not based on a view of grace that's too radical. It's based on a view of grace that's too cheap. And again, that's, that's liberalism. We have a word for that. It's called antinomianism. Let's just sin more. We'll get more grace. But the answer to antinomianism is not to temper grace with man-made limits and restrictions. That's legalism. And that's also a false view of grace that leads to more sin. You know, well, how's that? I thought we were trying to get further away from the line. Well, guess what you're doing? You're trying to earn and maintain your righteousness on your own efforts. And that's just as sinful as being licentious. Because both deny the power of God. Both deny the saving work of Jesus alone, applied by faith alone, through the cross of Christ. So here's the point. True gospel grace is far more radical than you think. We don't need a more tempered view of grace. We need a more radical view of grace. Let me end with a parable to illustrate, and then then we're done. A benevolent billionaire goes over to the Wilson Avenue overpass here on Lakeshore Drive and finds three men sleeping under the bridge. He's noticed these men have been living and sleeping there for quite some time. And to be clear, all of these men are of sound mind and reasonably good health, but they're, they're living there solely because of their own poor life choices, their own moral failures and depravity. These are, these are men who are there because of their responsibilities, and they all need serious help. So the billionaire greets them, and he points them up to the high-rise penthouse across the park, telling them, that's where I live. That's my home. And I'd like to invite you to come and to find rest and shelter there. He'll pay any debts that they may have. He'll offer them training and resources for new and better lives. There's nothing in his penthouse apartment that can harm them, only help them. They don't need to pay him. 
for any of this. They don't need to do anything to get any of this. They just need to come and receive his resources and his care. The first man comes and enjoys the hot bath and the steak dinner on day one, but decides he still kind of likes aspects of his life under the bridge. Nobody there ever tells him what to do. He can still run back to his vices when he feels like it, and sometimes he does. But perhaps most of all, while he likes the benevolence of this particular billionaire, he's not fully convinced that the billionaire isn't really going to demand something of him somewhere along the line. Or that there aren't other ways to receive those benefits from him besides leaving the bridge. So he comes in and out of the penthouse when it suits him, but he keeps his tent set up under the bridge. This man is like the liberal Christian and has a very weak view of the billionaire's benevolence. The second man gets very excited about the billionaire's offer and in fact thinks his excitement exceeds that of the first guy. He always kind of viewed the first guy as a bit of a weakling anyway. He really wants to go to the penthouse, but only after he cleans himself up a bit. He doesn't want to show up there with a dirty face and a tattered shirt, so he does his best to kind of fix those problems before knocking on the door. He enjoys the resources of the penthouse, but limits himself to only take the things that he feels worthy of that day or that week or however often it is that he goes to visit he always notices when the first guy doesn't show up, and that makes him feel a little bit better about himself because he did show up on that particular day. But there's also long stretches when he doesn't show up either because his face got dirty. His shirt got tattered again. He's made some bad choices that caused him to feel guilty and ashamed. The billionaire would, would never want to see him in that condition. How embarrassing. So he stays away. He'll go back eventually once he cleans himself up a bit. And in the meantime, he'll, he'll, he'll sort of step up his routine of, of discipline and, and set up some new parameters so that doesn't happen to him again. At least he hopes not. This man is like the legalist Christian and he too has a very weak view of the billionaire's benevolence. The third man is no different than the other two in just about every way, except this. He walked into the penthouse and he refused to leave. Not only did he eat the benevolent man's steak, he helped himself to the pantry and the fridge and he enjoyed whatever he laid his eyes on. He went into the billionaire's closet, took his clothes and wore them around the house putting them on, dancing around them. He'd sleep in all the bedrooms. He even drove the Ferrari in the garage. And he followed the billionaire around wherever he went, always asking him questions, gleaning from his wisdom and benefiting from his power and influence. I mean, this guy acted in ways that made the other two guys feel really uncomfortable. It made them feel like, how presumptuous are you? Radical. But here's the thing. 
This third man did these things not because he wanted to take advantage of the benevolence of the rich man, but because he was so grateful for the opportunity and the availability of these riches. He just wanted to be around the billionaire and be like him in every respect. He never wanted to go back to life under the bridge again. And the billionaire was pleased with this and always gave him more than he could even ask for. And the billionaire's desire was that the other two guys would come and take advantage of him in the same way and stay. And that's the picture of radical gospel grace. That's the life that Christ has freed us to live. And you know what? You will only live in it when your view of grace is so radical that you can never look back. I'm not looking back. Don't temper or cheapen the grace of God by looking back. Don't look at your life under the bridge and think that you found any pleasure there. And if you ever do, don't forget that your benevolent father never wants you to go back and he'll always welcome you into the penthouse again. Feast on the grace of the gospel and live like the holy and benevolent king who has adopted you and made you heirs with his son who paid your debt and who invited you to live with him in the purified penthouse of the Father. That's radical grace. And God's grace is far more radical than you think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your amazing love for sinners like us. Forgive us, Lord, for forever having attitudes. And I know, I know sometimes we do, God. We have attitudes that say, well, if God's grace abounds in sin, then I guess it doesn't really matter what I do. Forgive us for thinking like that. That's, that's foolishness. Remind us, Lord, often by your Spirit's work in our hearts, Lord, remind us often that we are not what we were. And that's because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us that we're new. Help us to walk in newness of life. Help us to live holy lives. Not out of obligation, not out of a sense of earning your favor, but out of a sense of of just enjoying the fullness of life as you've created it to be lived. Of being like you because we're so grateful for who you are and, and of your love for us to call us your sons and your daughters. Help us, Lord, to, to just forsake the old self. And help us to remember that when we fail to do that, that that's that's not what sustains our righteousness. What sustains our righteousness is Jesus' finished work on the cross, and it is finished. So help us to remember that and 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 to be picked up by it and to pursue you like that third guy in the analogy pursues you. Just, Just follow you everywhere. And thank you for making it possible. You are good. 
You are good. And we pray these things in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.